With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello listeners, I'm Ochatra and welcome to another episode of Money Talks. And I'm delighted to welcome back a chap that we've had on in the past, um, somebody that covers a sport of business and a business of sports um, in a level of detail and has over a long period of time in a way that very few do. Um, Also, uh, somebody that has written extensively about the subject um, for a variety of outlets, including the Mail and Sunday. Um, It is the wonderful Nick Harris. Nick, how are you doing? Good, thank you. It's a beautiful spring day, and uh, that's always good. The weather being so nice. Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah, certainly uh, can help put a smile on one's face for sure. Um, but yes, it, it is um, coming right towards the uh, start of a new week that follows on from perhaps the most newsworthy week um, when it comes to the business of football that we've had since. Uh, Perhaps a year ago when the uh, the Super League story broke uh, and, and that caused a huge uh, furore in certain quarters. Um, so there is so much to cover. But let's start with the story broken by um, Tarek Pandra of the New York Times last week, um, who wrote about how uh, UEFA are all set to ditch their current set of financial fair play rules um, and um, replace them with a new set of rules, um, which are um, to be based on uh, a certain percentage, which is 70%, whereby clubs need to ensure that they spend on uh, player wages, on transfer fees, agents' fees, um, amount to ostensibly 70% of a club's overall revenue. Um, And obviously there are other rules um, that um, Tariq reported on that would sit alongside that as well. Um, But... Just reflecting back on the financial fair play rules that did come into effect um, a number of years ago now, and obviously you've covered these rules um, in terms of both development, implementation, and, and effectiveness since they were introduced um, over a long period of time. Um, so let's just look at look at that then. So, I mean, though the rules have clearly done some good, their planned demise surely has to be seen as a victory for the clubs and owners who were most fundamentally opposed to them right 
Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I mean, there's obviously been lots of controversy over the years about about the rules. Um, uh, some clubs are obviously very unhappy with them. Um, you know, when they've fallen foul of them and had punishments, two particularly prominent clubs in PSG and Man City among them. Mm. Um, the rules, as we know, were introduced back in, in the, well, they came into operation in 2011-12 season. Um, uh, and, you know, the overall reason for coming in in the first place was really to sort of protect clubs from themselves in terms of trying to stem some of the heavy losses um, that was being seen across UEFA's whole 55 um, nations, footballing nations. I think there's often a perception to be insular in in any country, in England, in Italy, in France, to see things as if these rules were just brought in to get us or to affect our country, which is obviously palpable nonsense. The rules were built in um, you know, designed principally to, as I say, try and cut some of the losses, which were particularly bad in the poorer countries. And by and large, they they did achieve that sort of cutting losses by billions of pounds. But all rules have unintended consequences. Um, and, you know, maybe once the, the initial job had been done, the, you know, you needed to look at something else to, to, attract, to, to, um, to tackle some of the other issues, not least inequality of wealth or... Um, level of playing field in terms of actual fairness on the pitch and you know so so the new system is going to do away with the old FFP which obviously capped um, losses at a specific amount and is now going to be related to relative spending as you said 70% of income can in the future um, be spent on wages plus amortization which is effectively uh, the amount that you're spending on buying players annually Um, it won't be 70% from the beginning it'll be 70 percent by 2024 um, Mm a few years of of betting in period Um, but until it actually gets started and we see what effect it has and we see whether it's properly policed um, then you know we we can't really judge whether or not it will be successful obviously the the original main ffp ended up with manchester city being handed a a two-year ban for infringements, which was then overturned successfully by Man City in, in the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Now, that case, as we all know, had its controversies. If you're a Manchester City fan, you'll see that as complete vindication that you've never done anything wrong. You've been vindicated. The 10 million euro fine for not complying is an irrelevance. And, you know, the whole process was a nonsense. The counter argument to that, and it's a completely legitimate argument for Man City fans to argue that, because ultimately they've got the ban overturned, albeit with the fine. The counter argument to that is that UEFA, for whatever reason, chose not to demand more information from City, drag the process out. They chose not to follow up the case when it appears that a City executive had contradicted um, um, himself in the court proceedings. So, you know, it was becoming messy. It was becoming expensive. The new system, you know, it was an imperfect, it was imperfectly policed as well the old system so there's a lot of questions to be asked over you know will this new system be any better will it actually have effective punishments will they you know what what other ways will there be to get around the new rules because of course if it's based on um 70 of your revenues then are there things that you can do to increase your revenues in order to allow you to increase your spending and the answer to that is obviously clearly yes you can do more sponsorship deals and are they going to be policed and how effectively so new system uh wait and see i would say without any confidence that it would 
particularly effective. The other thing is Alexander Seferin, the UEFA president, had talked over the last few years while people were mulling over what a new system might look like about a, an actual salary cap. You know, he's very much talking about a hard cap. I know there are legal issues in, in Europe around capping salaries, but there are all sorts of sports around the world that have effective salary caps when there's buy-in from all the teams. But he obviously decided there was no prospect of getting that buy-in. So that has been ditched in favour of this 70% of your revenues. Mm. Quite. And, and obviously cynics um, will argue that, you know, for certain clubs who perhaps are a bit more cavalier when it comes to adhering to the rules, um, may just simply wish to make a, re- a, a revenue figure read exactly what it needs to read in, in order to make the, the 70% rule work for them in their particular instance. And, and, I, and I guess that, um, that that is where, you know, the subject mentioned a moment ago around policing of these rules is absolutely key because, you know, again, critics will argue that UEFA um, did, did struggle um, to effectively police their own set of rules when it came to certain clubs. Clearly, they were quite effective at... Um, enforcing these rules when it came to um, clubs that don't wield much power um, either on the world footballing stage or even wider and more broadly um, when it comes to the political sphere. sphere. But uh, this is something that I I guess is at the crux of ensuring that these new rules will work. If if, if, uh, UEFA are seen to be uh, weak or ineffective at policing them when it comes to the biggest clubs, and, and especially those clubs uh, such as your PSG, your Manchester Cities, and now Newcastle United over the coming years, then, then again, cynics will argue that, that the rules are not really enforcing at that very highest echelon of football um, that, that kind of matters that they're trying to protect. And that, that, I, I guess that, that is where um, some fans will struggle with these set of rules and feel that, if anything, the change... Um, makes it more difficult for clubs that try to adhere to rules whilst making it arguably easier for those that try to get around the rules. Yeah, and that, that is going to come down to the policing and how effective that is. I think there's, you know, I think most of the, um, even most of the big clubs as things stand will will struggle to get their wages plus their amortisation as things stand under the 70%. So, you know, it's closer to 85, 90% for the big English clubs at the moment for those things mm-hmm. and, and higher still for some of them. Um, and, and you know, I guess we just have to wait and see what the clubs do in response. I mean, we don't know at this point, for example, what's going to happen at Newcastle in terms of spending. Now, PIF are in charge. They spent a bit of money in January, but it wasn't bonkers money. Are they going to attempt to go out in the summer and start spending hundreds of millions of pounds a year on players and how are they going to do that to fit within both the new UEFA rules and the domestic FFP which allows losses of 105 million I think over a three-year mm-hmm. period you know yeah. are they simply going to sign up a, a bunch of um, Saudi-based sponsors giving them huge amounts of money in supposedly arm's-length deals that will quite clearly be anything but um, we don't know so that's one to watch um, and obviously, you know, PSG and other situations that we can all think about. You know, we've had big sponsorship deals that, that you know, are from parties that are connected to ownership groups that yeah. are 
you know, massively more than, say, a genuinely independent third party, you know, would probably pay. Um, and obviously, we never see the underbidders to some of these big contracts. Mm. Right. So, yeah, I just think with UEFA, it's the headline is, yeah, this is the new rule. I think it's the 7th of April. It will be ratified and formally announced with a bit more detail. Um, you know, Tarek, uh, very good story, good scoop. Tarek's got excellent, um, excellent contacts. And, um, you know, obviously, we could take the story at face value. And I know from speaking to Tarek, I think we're both slightly sceptical over the extent to which it will be policed. Mm. Um, and and it doesn't it certainly doesn't do anything to um, close the gap between the super clubs uh, and and the rest and this is going to be at a time when the revamped Champions League you know is going to be playing more games and, and the bigger richer clubs uh, whose revenues just are bigger are going to have more firepower in terms of buying players and paying wages because they've their revenues just simply are bigger. Mm. So the more that you spend and the more that you can maintain your success at the top, uh, the more revenue you will earn because you'll be playing regularly in European football and making greater European revenues because UEFA's broadcasting contracts are going up and you'll be doing well domestically and getting money from that. And therefore you'll be, if you're doing well domestically and in Champions League, you'll be more global as they are, the super clubs, and therefore you'll be attracting more sponsors. And you'll just go into this sort of, cycle of 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 increasing disparity between the super clubs and the rest um so to that extent the new rules i don't think are going to do and certainly not going to make the difference the wealth gap any better ffp having a fixed amount of um losses per year over and above what you earn is go is a better system for trying to sort of maintain some kind of some kind of uh, closeness than than i think the new system will be but as i say it remains to be seen absolutely um so just sticking with the subject but um diverting our attention to the premier league so um it has been just the three years since they launched their own investigation into manchester city and their finances um and as far as I'm aware, um, it's still not been concluded. So uh, do, do you think that there's any ambition at all within the Premier League, given this investigation that has dragged out for a far too prolonged a period, on top of the way for changing its rules to result in the Premier League potentially devising its own set of rules that could potentially sit alongside the new rules in much the same way that the EFL has had in place for a number of years um, or, or do you think the Premier League might not really have the appetite to come up with something that perhaps sits over and above the, what the new set of rules could be? Well obviously the, the UEFA rules are for clubs playing in UEFA competition and yes. the Premier League rules are rules in place for all Premier League clubs um, and they're obviously different in terms of the amounts and structuring and they obviously remain in place. The issue with the Manchester City investigation, which began in March 2019, so we are three years on, it's this week, actually, due to enter its fourth year. And it was only, we knew, we knew about it when it was announced because of an announcement. And then they said, we, we won't be referring to it again until it's concluded. And it was only last year that we sort of went and, 
you know, realise that this thing is now being fought out in the courts, Manchester City versus the Premier League. Mm. And eventually, after we got what was in effect an injunction lifted and we were allowed into court to, to hear some of the, uh, see some of what was going on, not a, not a great deal, but, you know, at least to, to see that the parties were still at it legally. Um, you know, we realised quite how long and quite how secret the Premier League would be keeping it. We still don't know what the specific allegations are, apart from that they're around alleged financial fair play discrepancies, uh, uh, almost certainly in relation to the De Spiegel allegations against Manchester City. Mm. And, you know, we, we wrote about it last year. And in effect, I think the fact that the Premier League was still spending money and still trying to get somewhere with it shows that there was an appetite in the hierarchy of the Premier League, probably being mightily encouraged by the other main rivals of of Manchester City, not least Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham. Um, I'm sure they would be encouraging the Premier League to keep on at, you know, trying to get the evidence and potentially prosecute Manchester City if indeed Manchester City have broken the rules. But it all got, you know, it's bogged. Manchester City have done what they did in, in effect with UEFA. They've, they've appeared to be non-cooperating and doing everything they can to slow the process down as far as possible so we, we don't even know at this stage whether or to what extent Manchester City have granted the Premier League's request to access for information in, in other words sort of discovery materials mm. and God knows how many years this this kind of disclosure of, of, of information these cases can drag on for years just bogged down in technical arguments over disclosure Manchester City can rightfully say well, we're simply not just going to give you every single piece of information we've ever had in relation to any of our sponsorship deals because that's just you on a fishing expedition. You have to come to us and tell us what you think we've got and then we'll have a legal argument over whether we give it to you. And logic would suggest if there is anything that would get the Manchester City into trouble with the Premier League, they're certainly not going to hand it over voluntarily. So I think that problem is just intractable. As far as we know, it hasn't been concluded because the Premier League said they would announce as and when it concluded. I, my hunch last year was that it will drag on and on and on and possibly end with some sort of agreement as the UEFA case ended, which was a fine for non-cooperation. And mm. um, because you can't really, I mean, it would be a huge deal for the Premier League at this point to go and sanction Manchester City with any kind of sporting penalty, I think, even if they were found to have infringe the rules so is it best for everyone just to sort of if city you know accepted a rap on the knuckles and a fine is that good enough for the rivals are, are man city in fact completely innocent of all allegations made against them oh. um we don't know but i'm not sure you know the premier league is still waging that battle without probably having an appetite to get into to more fights but again you know, the Premier League is a is a stakeholder group of 20 parties in any one season. And when, you know, the not inconsiderably powerful voices of Manchester United and Liverpool and Arsenal and Chelsea are involved, they will clearly want to, to sort of hope that the Premier League see this thing through. But it's shrouded in secrecy, so we're not mm. really any the wiser about what stage it's at. Mm. No, absolutely. Right. Um, so sticking with Manchester City, just for one more... Uh, topic they recently finished atop the uh, Deloitte Football Money League which was published um, over last week and they finished the top for the first time which meant that their revenues 
exceeded those of any football club on the planet for the 2020-21 season. Yeah. Um, key, key to that was their commercial revenues, which exceeded 270 million. Yeah. And in 2021, uh, which was a season that saw the most, well, saw a number of top clubs' commercial revenues suffer a hit, they reached that level, which was on par with Manchester United's probably top year when it comes to commercial revenue. So, so that is the level of commercial revenues Manchester City have hit, despite the fact that, you know, uh, one of the things we often hear sponsors look at is things like fan engagement and popularity of these clubs. And um, by, by many metrics, Manchester City are not on a par with the most popular clubs in the world. Despite that, though, um, their commercial revenues are a bit uh, very, very significant levels. It really is quite remarkable, isn't it, Nick? Um, and during this season, of course, the club have announced yet more sponsorship deals with companies largely based in or having close links to Abu Dhabi. It, it, it is either pure coincidence or, or just the work of some absolutely genius people in the commercial department or both. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the top 10 in the nineteen twenty season, I don't think you know, you'd be particularly surprised. And, and these lists tend to sort of... People bob up and down one or two places in these lists, typically. So Real Madrid might vie with Barcelona for supremacy. Years ago, until, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago, Manchester United were always one, and Barcelona and Real Madrid were vying for two, and a bit further back, maybe Milan were up there, and Bayern Munich would always be in the top five, and sometimes four or sometimes three. So the top 10 in 2019-20 were number one Barcelona, Real Madrid in second, Bayern Munich in third, Manchester United in fourth, and Liverpool in fifth. Um, all of those um, clubs with, you know, European pedigrees, multiple Champions League stroke European Cups, um, you, you know, God knows how many between them, 20, probably more, maybe 20 more, more than 20 Champions League European Cups between those five clubs. And then yeah. City was six, Paris Saint-Germain seventh, Chelsea eighth, um, Tottenham ninth and Juventus tenth. Now the same teams the same 10 teams comprise the top 10 of the, of the latest rich list released early 2022, just released for the 2021 season. Um, Tottenham and, and Juve have swapped places. Instead of Tottenham being ninth, they're, they're down to 10th. And Juve are, are up a place. Chelsea stay the same in eighth. Paris Saint-Germain are down, uh, sorry, one up one place. Liverpool are down two places. And, uh, and the biggest riser, as you say, in this pandemic year is Manchester United, of Manchester City, sorry, have leapt from, from sixth in that list with revenues of 549 million euros straight to number one with a revenue increase of, of um, 100, 100 million euros in a year in which most other clubs had flat or declining revenues because of the pandemic. Now, when you break down uh, Manchester City's revenue, they're, they're, um, they're com- they're, their match day revenue was tiny. I think it was, I don't know, 15 or something million because or no it was it was less in 1920 sorry i mean in 2021 it was one million for match day yes oh, so so in terms of and, and in pounds the revenue so if we're doing in pounds it had gone up from 2020 revenue was 481 million and then it had gone up by 90 million pounds to 571 million oh. so it jumped 90 million pounds at a time when everyone else's revenues are flat or declining pretty much now they didn't have virtually any match day revenue in 2021 under a million quid um, um their tv revenue had soared up to 
close to 300 million, 297. And that's because some of the revenue that they had <clears throat> not had in the project restart season that then basically fell into the next financial year. So revenues that they hadn't had uh, with a lot of clubs, this was the same. But as you, as you say, the big thing is this uh, rise in commercial revenue to 272.9 million pounds. Again, at a time in a pandemic when everyone's struggling. And, and yes, you're right to point to, you know, the main new sponsors. They do have sponsors, some sponsors, some big household name sponsors, of course, not related to Abu Dhabi, but their key sponsorship deals, their headline, the, the Etihad deal, um, which we don't actually know the current value of. Um, it, it's not something they declare. It was 67 and a half million uh, all five, six, seven years ago. So oh. don't know what that is now. I mean, and that's at a time, you know, obviously that's the, the campus sponsorship and the shirt sponsorship. Um, but yeah, there are other, you know, um, deals related to companies based in Abu Dhabi. I think more than half of the, that commercial revenue I've worked it out. I think last time I looked at it, it was about 56% of their commercial revenues were from companies, you know, based in Abu Dhabi. Um, which again is, is fine if you have your connections and you have your businesses, but um, who who want to sponsor the, the club because that's where the owner comes from, then then that's fair enough. But obviously City failed FFP in 2014 because they were found to have overinflated certain revenue streams. And and the, the second case, um, you know, which got the, the ban overturned again was related to um, disguised and, um, you know, inflated income um so so yeah it is given that you know city um, just on any any normal sort of footballing metric when you're looking at sort of tv audiences social media followings european cup wins the real pinnacle the european royalty you know real madrid and barcelona and bayern munich obviously the big event the big italian clubs um and and the big english clubs um they're not in that they're not in that bracket yet. Um, I think, you know, they're clearly knocking on the door. Three, five Premier Leagues out of the last 10, three out of the last four. Possibly if they win it this season, it'll be, well, if they win it this season, it will be four out of the last five, depending on what Liverpool mm -hmm. do to, to prevent yeah. that. But, but you know, it's it's not a secret that Sheikh Mansour and Khaldun want the European Cup. They want the Champions League because until they actually win that trophy, then then they've you know they've never been european champions and 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 that's that's the big thing so from that in that regard um they're just not they're just not in that top top echelon bracket and yet that their revenues have been so consistently high despite not being on the same level um is obviously interesting that's uh, one way to put it. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> it's certainly uh, something that, uh, yeah, has many observers scratching their heads in terms of how they quite achieve mean, it. But uh, that's not to say, however, the money has come in, and uh, you know, it'd be great. It'd be great to have a breakdown or mm. at some point, and and you know, meet some of the chief executives of the companies who sort of pouring this money in, and and to go behind the curtain and see how the deals are done and talk to executives and get people to explain to you you know in business terms you know how is this what what should, what's the return on investment here 
what what do the activations look like for these sponsorship deals and you know we've asked a number of times to sort of say look can we talk to people can we go through some numbers and talk us through it in a business sense because in a purely business sense i never really saw how how even a 67 million pound um deal for etihad worked in an roi terms um or how or how that was sort of comparable to the sort of values that manchester united and other big clubs were getting for their shirts um you know that city should have been getting 67 for a campus and shirt deal at oh. a point at a point when manchester united chevy deal was worth quite a lot less yeah um it seems a bit you know it seems very 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 good work by city's commercial team playing a blinder absolutely playing a blinder um in many ways but uh right so just just moving on um right just one second so um moving on to an, another club then whose ownership has created much debate over the years in chelsea yeah they're about to go through a big change with Roman Abramovich's time clearly up and um, having had Chelsea essentially seized by the government and its sale being overseen by the Rain Group with proceeds from sales reportedly set to be diverted to Ukraine by the government. If we can start with Abramovich to begin with when it comes to this story, um, though his time is owner has been discussed at great length over recent weeks, what do you, what do you make of his legacy? Overall, do you think it will be looked at favourably or unfavourably in respect to the influence he has had on English football? Right. Well, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, from a Chelsea fan perspective, his legacy will be brilliant, transformative. He's overseen the best years of Chelsea's history in terms of trophies. I think it's five Premier Leagues, two Champions League, FA Cups. League Cups, I think, as well, Europa League. Um, yeah. I think, you know, so trophy strewn, some of the biggest and best players, some great managers. Um, uh, so, from a Chelsea fan perspective, the legacy is untarnished. Chelsea fans almost universally adore him and are thankful for him. And they also point to, you know, community work. The, 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 the Chelsea, um, the Chelsea Trust. Um, the Chelsea community sort of work, you know, it has done lots of, lots of good positive stuff for the local community. Abramovich did, he was one of the early people who handed over Chelsea Hotel and the facilities in the, in the COVID pandemic. I know Chelsea fans who, you know, who've met Abramovich and they, he, he is personally engaged in lots of sort of anti-racism and anti-Semitism stuff. So, mm. so from that point of view, his legacy will be untarnished amongst Chelsea fans. In terms of his his footballing legacy um i think it it is unarguable regardless of what you think of of his money and how he got it and obviously people think that it, you know till gotten games and of course mm. in the past he was in fact he didn't serve time in prison but he was handed a prison sentence yeah <clears throat> for his activities in the past taking state assets to turn yourself into an oligarch billionaire is is not necessarily that classy but so <laughs> if you set aside all that stuff then from a footballing point of view, we were, you know, before he arrived in the summer of 2003, the Premier League was basically a duopoly. It was Manchester United and it was Arsenal. And he came in as the disruptor who, you know, by brought in Jose Mourinho, who at that point was box office and not just a, a boring old joke. Um, so 
his money allowed that to happen and lots of people even more widely than Chelsea were excited about the fact that you know Manchester United had a challenger and that Arsenal had a challenger so from a football point of view it is complex because you you sort of in in the same way that Manchester City Mansour comes along and shakes it up with his money as well and again question marks over the way that they did it but you know it clearly increased increased the competition beyond you know Liverpool and Arsenal and Arsenal have then been in the doldrums without a title for was it seven was it four five was there or was it three Um, four there three four three four was invincible season that's yeah that was their last title so you're looking at 18 years since Arsenal won the title isn't that amazing that's correct yeah yeah closing on two decades so obviously Chelsea won titles in in relatively recent times Um, um, Manchester United obviously haven't since 2013 so from that point of view you could argue, as obviously Chelsea fans and Man City fans do, that, that, that it increases the competition. But um, in terms of the, the wider legacy of him, you know, throwing into sharp focus, again, how he came, we, we all know how he came about the money. We, we all knew from the beginning. And people have talked about it for a long time. I was, you know, writing about the darker side of, of Abramovic years ago. And other, some other people were as well. But you know, yeah. how, how many times can you bang bang the same drum? But obviously, when you have a war in Europe being perpetrated by Vladimir Putin, who's obviously a gangster and, and a megalomaniac and possibly also going mad, mm. and, and, it's, and, and, and it's thrown into sharp focus just quite how closely connected, according to government intelligence and now the British government, Abramovich is to Putin in terms of, you know, how he has benefited from Putin's patronage. Then at a time of war and with the threat of nuclear war hanging over us, then obviously we now look at it suddenly just in the last, what, the war's been raging a month, five weeks, people suddenly, you know, you're smacking your forehead and saying, oh my God, of course, this guy who's worth 11 or 13 billion pounds or whatever is actually worth that because he's just really, really well politically connected in the Kremlin. Mm. And his support for Putin and vice versa have, you know, kept Putin in power uh, and vice versa, kept the oligarchs happy and free to amass this money and keep it. And therefore the legacy in those terms is obviously absolutely damning that it's taken a war that's killing thousands of people, including hundreds of civilians and children and shocking footage that we're all watching on a daily basis. You're just, well, of course, this is absolutely obscene why 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 weren't we you know asking more questions and and why weren't we considering this stuff long before now Mm. so from that point of view his legacy is just you know it's a blot yeah yeah absolutely um yeah, you know, as you say, I mean, you know, yourself and other writers like Matthew Slade have written at length about... Um, yeah, Matthew's been Abramovich. banging on about Abramovich for years, um, yes. to, his, to his credit. And he gets, he, he, I know Matthew's a, a, Marmite, a Marmite journalist. Um, mm. You know, I like, a, I like Matthew and I like a, a lot of his stuff and we disagree profoundly about other parts of it. Um, mm. But, but um, he has, to be fair to him, been banging on about Abramovich for a long time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, he, he will certainly be feeling vindicated um, about, you know, a lot of the uh, 
stuff he had written and um, talked about, commented about Abramovich and, uh, you know, and, and about the subject more broadly about you know, oligarchs in London and uh, the kind of spread of influence over, over quite a prolonged period and how that was encouraged by the establishment to some extent. Uh, but that, that's another subject for another podcast. Um, yeah. Sticking to football then. So um, we, we know now that there is a short list of four bidders and yeah. some are speculating that Perhaps surprisingly, um, the club could be sold for in excess of $3 billion. Um, from what we know about the four bidders, uh, none of the four uh, are likely to bankroll the club in the way that Abramovich did over the last nearly two decades. And that ultimately uh, will be difficult for many Chelsea fans to come to terms with, right? Yeah, I mean, there's so many more questions and answers about this whole issue, not least this price. I mean, $3 billion is what? It's more than £2 billion. From a purely financial point of view, what is Chelsea worth? What is Chelsea actually worth if you sort of are trying to value, give it a valuation of, even if you were buying it with cash and you weren't taking out loans, you didn't have, you know, high interest loans or, or whatever. If you could fund it with cash, what's it actually worth? Now, if you're really, really, really mega wealthy, someone who's got 20 or 30 billion and you can just say 2 billion is fine, it's an asset that I want, I'm not necessarily interested in return on investment then fine but if if any of these people any any of the people who are in the running are bidding are going to pay two billion pounds and then have to get over the problem not just of how to redevelop Stamford bridge or move away but fund that to the tune of a, another billion plus to to sort out the long-standing chelsea stadium issue mm. then then you know, you're only going to add another 20,000 seats. And yes, your revenues might be quite a lot higher, but if it's cost you a billion pounds, you're not going to see a return on investment of that billion pounds that you've spent on the stadium, let alone in terms of the club. I mean, there's there's one, the, the model that I prefer in terms of valuations of clubs is one known as the Markham multivariate model, Tom Markham, who yeah. is a, an accountant who's worked for, you know, as a, as a, doing due diligence for, for people, for club buyers and owners, and has worked as, mm. a, you know, checking club finances for various agencies and bodies, smart guy. So he, uh, you know, finalised the model and the Markham multivariate model in 2013, actually first wrote about it in detail on sportingintelligence.com and anyone could go to the, the website, search for Markham and find those pieces and in fact find um, a copy of, of the original model and the formula. Now, the Tom's model would put Chelsea objectively worth about 1.3, maybe 1.5 billion pounds. But above that, no, I mean, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. The evaluation of that above that in terms of what the club has got in terms of its assets, its revenues, its profits and losses, its trading figures. It just doesn't, I don't, it doesn't make sense. So you could just assume that maybe, you know these four groups are, are have got more money than we think um have got loan facilities potentially that are not going to be costly i mean i know that the ricketts family who are backed by um a hedge fund billionaire who's got you know allegedly worth sort of 20 billion pounds or dollars ken griffin i mean if ken griffin has got cash that he can inject and and they just fancy this big prize premier league asset and the, and the gamble is not necessarily that it provides return on investment necessarily but that as a long-term asset 
to hold in 10 or 20 years, its asset value, its core asset value will dramatically increase. I, I guess if that's the play, then then fair enough. But the idea that um, Chelsea is, you know, I think the fact that we're talking about it being worth £2 billion is only because now there seem to be these four bids, but in themselves, you know, they're problematic. You've got the team team Bowley bid led by the US billionaire Ted Bowley, who's part owner of um, LA Dodgers and also an NBA basketball team mm-hmm. and partners, and the bid from the Ricketts family, who've, who've got the, the hedge fund guy with them. They would appear to me to be the least encumbered by other issues because the other two bids, there's the bid led by Sir Martin Broughton, the former chairman of British Airways, which has got the US tycoons, David Blitzer and Josh Harris as part of the financial muscle. Now they both own 18% each of Crystal Palace. Um, Now they would have to divest themselves of that interest or at least take it down under 10% if they were going to, depending what stake they were going to take in Chelsea. And they'd have to do that apparently by the end of April, that's a problem. And then the mm. fourth bid is a guy called Stephen Pagliuca, who's co-owner of the, co-owner of the Boston Celtics basketball team in the NBA and 55% shareholder of Atalanta in Syria. Yeah. Again, he's going to have to massively downsize his Atalanta stake if he's going to buy Chelsea. Um, again, below 10% to fit with UEFA rules, I think it is. So, so those bids have got that problem. Um, and, and then there is this issue of okay, so if you are going to pay more than one and a half billion just to buy the thing, how are you going to fund that? Are you funding that with cash? Are you funding that with debt? If you're funding it with debt, what, what at this point of rising interest rates are your interest rates going to be? And what are your plans for the stadium? Because I think rain in New York are very much encouraging all the groups to come forward with, with costed and detailed proposals about this problem, what has been a long-term problematic issue of a stadium. Stamford Bridge is, you know, a 40,000 seat ground in a capital where its capital rivals alone are West Ham with 60,000 seats, Arsenal with 60,000 seats, Tottenham with 60,000 or whatever theirs is. You've got, you know, other, other, the other big clubs expanding elsewhere in the Northwest. So, you know, do they stay at Stamford Bridge and do a really ex- a billion pounds? You know, and the cost of construction are. are- Going up um, of course. as well. So, I mean, pl- planning permission that Abramovich had actually expired in uh, April 2021 as well. So they'd actually have to, not that there would necessarily be a problem with planning permission, but they would have to go through the whole planning process again because mm. the Abramovich uh, planning permission has expired. So yeah, cost of, you know, the cost of steel, the cost of fuel. Um, interesting to watch, but, you know, no doubt the, there are some rich people involved. Um, but two of them, I think, appear to be problematic because of the ownership issues. And they're not really, I, I wouldn't have thought, the kind of issues that can be sorted that quickly. You know, can no. Blitz a sell up in a month or downsize uh, in a month? Uh, and, that is, uh, and that is, you know, a large part of the problem. I mean, I'm an accountant myself. I'm involved in um, an acquisition for significantly less uh, sums of money. Uh, and that is something that in terms of due diligence and all the rest of it, it is something that is and will be taking quite a number of months. The Rain Group is looking to wrap up this sale in a matter of weeks. Yeah, uh, but... and This is for a multi-billion uh, pound or dollar uh, sum. So I, I really think it, it doesn't really stack up in terms of 
getting the deal done, but with the ownerships, uh, sorry, the bidders obviously needed to commit full due diligence. I mean, it'd be absolutely foolish to make a purchase of this size without carrying out the full due diligence, especially when it comes to the fact that they, they know all four of them that um, what they have to say um, pledge when it comes to the stadium, whether it's expanding Stamford Bridge or moving the club elsewhere um, in itself is, is going to be complex. Um, yeah. And all of I this think, will take time. I mean, the, the other thing in favour of the Bowley and the Ricketts bids is they've both bid for Chelsea before. I can't remember which order it was, but one bid in 2018 and one bid in 2019. So mm-hmm. they will have done a large degree of the due diligence and be familiar with the books. They will have, uh, certainly the Ricketts, I know, have been in touch with the stadium, um, the Abramovich's, you know, new stadium planning team, the architect. They have been through all that and the Bowley people will have been through that when they bid so they'll, they'll be ahead in that regard as well but back to your original question about this the whole thing of, of Chelsea and Chelsea will be living in a new reality with under the new owners is that remember these guys operating in US sport in baseball basketball respect well baseball and basketball in Bowley's case uh, baseball in, in the Ricketts case is these are leagues that are closed shops where there are um you know, wage structures built around fixed percentages uh, of, of you know, team revenues, and, uh, sort of league revenues. So they're kind of, they're guaranteed to, um, I mean, generally they're guaranteed profits. They're, they're sort of profitable organisations because the, 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 um, the bargaining agreements on wages, you know, give a degree of cost controls. And in baseball, there's obviously a luxury tax. So, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't spend loads and loads of, or if you spend within the, 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 the wage limits and you're not paying luxury tax, then you're generally fine. And if you're, you know, the biggest spending teams, the luxury tax gets, um, gets levied and then gets shared. So yeah. there's a lot of degree of protection from the huge um, TV deals that these sports have in America. And it's a very different model. You know, it's, it's closed shop and to a degree it's safeguarded. And, it's obviously very, very different here. So the bottom line of Abramovich's 19 years is 1.5 billion that he is owed, that he says he's not going to take, but from Fordston, the parent company, that's, he has put in one and a half billion over and above what the club have cost to run. And if these guys from America are coming in thinking that they are going to run their businesses in the way they run their American businesses, which is, at, you know, breaking even or for profit, then de facto Chelsea are going to be having to operate on lower budgets in the future than they have to this point, which has cost uh, one and a half billion pounds of Abramovich loans. So that might mean cutting their wage bill and it might mean spending less on players because if they're going to run, you know, run the businesses to make money or break even, there isn't really an alternative than either dramatically dramatically increasing your revenues or your commercial revenues if they think they can monetize that particularly in america um i guess that is an option but it's going to be a different reality for chelsea fans and i mean we could see what's happened at arsenal over well obviously since the, the the double season um they're building a new state you know the building of the stadium and how they cut back on the playing side and their their wage bill has dropped well behind Certainly, uh, Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea, um, 
and that's shown on the pitch. And although they do, you know, now seem to be getting their act together, um, Champions League probably favourites for Champions League fourth spot now. Um, you know, they're living under a new reality because Cronky's, you know, Cronky hasn't been piling loads of money in. Um, and obviously, we know what happened with the Glazers. They have actually put in a lot of money in terms of um, wage bills and players. I think it's of the 17 most expensive players of all time in world football. Um, Manchester United have signed four of them, including Pogba, who was a world record when he signed. Mm. Harry Maguire, who remarkably remains the most expensive defender in the history of football. And then um, <laughs> uh, Romelu Lukaku and Jadon Sancho are all inside mm. the top 17 most expensive players. And obviously they've always had a pretty high wage bill, but then they've also taken out a lot of money. They leveraged the club in the first place. They take out dividends and they've taken out, what, billions, not billions, multiple, but certainly more than a billion in loans and fees and repayments and whatever. So, mm. um, whereas Liverpool's owners, you know, have, have um, you know, got there, obviously signing a clock was a master stroke and it's, that has worked out brilliantly. And, um, you know, seem to be doing things, doing things, uh, Certainly, in a in a slightly different way than Cronky and the Glazers. Uh, absolutely, and um, I think what's common amongst um, the current set of American owners in, in the Premier League is that um, even though their their business models do do differ from one to the next, um, one thing they all have in common is the fact that they look to fund um, that the clubs uh, spend, whether it's on player acquisitions, whether it's on investment infrastructure um, through funds that the club are generating. Um, and, and though, yes, FSG, the Liverpool owners, did take out a loan um, to fund the expansion of the main stand, which was completed five, years, five six years ago now, um, it is nonetheless money that they didn't inject directly from their own funds. And in the same way, the Glazers have not done that during their 17 years of ownership of Manchester United, neither have the Cronkies at Arsenal. Um, and I suspect that um, all four of these uh, bidders, at the point at which one of them are to be appointed as the new owners of Chelsea, will likely adopt a model um, closer in line to that of perhaps an FSG and the Liverpool model, which is ultimately about financial self-sustainability and about funding um, the club's um, activities from monies generated by the club itself rather than injecting funds themselves. And I suspect, suspect that the higher this winning bid has to reach um, on top of whatever funds are required for investment into either Stamford Bridge or a new stadium, ultimately will mean even less money to potentially spend when it comes to um, player recruitment. And ultimately, many, if not most, football fans are fickle and ultimately do judge ownership groups um, by the investment that they um, put into player acquisitions. And uh, I, I think that is something that I think some Chelsea fans will certainly struggle with, at least initially when it comes to a change of ownership. But on that subject, uh, Nick, um, just earlier today, as we recall this, um, the Mail on Sunday published a story um, about a survey um, that you had um, conducted and uh, 
something you'd worked on over the last several months and you sought uh, fan views about the owners of the 20 Premier League club. So firstly, um, wh why did you decide to undertake this exercise and were you pleased with the response? So we decided to undertake it because obviously there's talk, well, not talk, I mean, the, the, the Tracy Crouch report, um, fan-led independent review of, of, of governance in, in football and whether you know, ultimately concluded that in, recommended there should be an independent regulator. I mean, I've been doing my job, football, football business, football finances, football politics for 26 years, national newspapers, and people have been talking about regulators and regulation for that whole time. Successive governments have vowed in manifestos this, that, and the other, and nothing's ever happened. And, you know, just some of the fiascos of the last few years, Project Big Picture was just ridiculous obviously that involved um liverpool's owner fairly prominently along with joel glazer and then the super league which was right rightly and roundly and very quickly derided and killed off was you know these kind of things are respectively the death of english football and arguably the death of you know competitive european football had project picture and esl come off as originally envisaged and so you know these are these are sort of clear dangers to the very fabric of, of football you know you're moving towards well in the case of esl a closed league your project picture you were moving to the power switching forever to seven clubs you know and you only know that's going one way when you've got the biggest most powerful clubs wanting all the control and, and all the money so these things as well as the fact that there's been a pandemic and all the, all the issues that that's thrown up about football and so it was I guess it, it was in that whole thing of in that whole space of me thinking that uh, you know actually there's quite a lot right with football still fundamentally with with this certainly the game if not the industry and people still love it and it's very important but at the same time my view has always been if you get good owners in charge of football clubs and by good owners I don't mean rich owners or people who are willing to chuck loads of money at football because chucking loads of money at football is is never a guarantee of success as you can see at manchester united since 2013 as you can see at derby under mel morris who's a genuine derby fan who's lost a quarter of a billion quid of his money by making bad decisions but he's a fan and he did it in the hope that it would do good things for his club but my view is if you have good owners so that means people who's not just going to chuck money but who could be sensible and do things carefully then i think fundamentally you will have a better game and a better, fairer game overall. So that was my starting point to kind of try and set up, well, first go and speak to the fans through a survey of certainly starting as we did with the 20 Premier League clubs and ask the simple questions that would come up with usable sort of binary data. So a question about on balance, do you think your owners during their reign, whatever it is, so at Liverpool it was, do you think Fenway have been good owners on balance since 2010 at, at Brentford it was do you think Matt Benham has been a good owner of Brentford since 2009 and so on Chelsea fans were asked blood do you think Abramovich since 2000 a yes or no a binary thing so people it's an easy it's very clear it provides clear data and then another question was who else do you find to be an admirable owner outside of your club one of the other 19 clubs who do you think is an admirable owner and 
and then there was a question about a regulator do you you know this this issue particularly over the piff saudi bid which has thrown up the whole ownership debate into sharper focus since since that got has gone through and and the debate around sovereign wealth funds and nation states and you know government-backed individuals so i asked the question do you you know do you want a regulator and do you want that regulator to have the power to sort of say no more nation states or no nation states are nation states owning football clubs good for our game are sovereign wealth funds good for our game what will it actually lead to and i think obviously the survey was envisaged and started and conducted sort of january february the geopolitical events of recent weeks have actually made this more relevant than ever but the reason for starting it the premise for starting it is my hypothesis that good owners are, are in, all, in all kinds of measured by different metrics are, are good for football and actually there's probably more good owners than we than we necessarily think because we might think of bad owners or people who bankrupt clubs or people who spend loads of money and waste it and then get into trouble and leave but so I wanted to ask fans about their perceptions of their club and their owners and also their perceptions of other club and other owners and then also this, this issue about a regulator what do you as a fan of football club want to see from a regulator so that was why, why what we set out to do and then a separate piece from that I did a really pretty vast piece of data dive into how much um, each of the owners in their current reigns had spent um, on transfers on average annually through their years and on wages and what had that produced in terms of trophies adding up the trophies another quite simple but quite telling thing was what is the average league position of, of the club during the ownership and what was it in the five years before they took over because that alone that really simple metric alone is pretty telling generally speaking if the league position during any given owner's reign is higher than it was in the five years before they've taken over pretty much you could say well it looks like they've been a good owner and 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 just in other ways i mean in actual fact in the case of liverpool their um average league position in the five years before Fenway took over was 3.8 in the premier league and in in the completed since um season since it's 4.6 but obviously you know liverpool in the last four or five years are, are going to you know if they finish first or second this season that 4.6 will be down to probably below what the previous thing and so they'll take that box so looking at all these metrics and then all the you know so in the case of Delia Smith I went back 26 years through Norwich's finances for 26 years looking at the amortization you know the, the transfer, net transfer spend amortization the wages um, adjusted all the figures for inflation so you could work out you know for example um, on a like-for-like -like basis so to give you an example Man City's average net spend in the 14 years since Mansour took over on transfer player play, transfers is 116 million pounds. That's adjusted to 2022 prices per year, and the average wages per year is 269 million pounds. So, if I give you a comparison with uh, Liverpool, Liverpool's net spend per year under Fenway has been 49.8, so under half of what Man City have spent, and the wage bill 245.7, which is you know 20 million behind but if you go to Brentford for example in the 13 years Matt Benham's been in charge um, his average net spend per year of his 13 years in charge is minus 5.8 million in other words he's made a profit of an average profit of nearly six million pounds every year he's been in charge in terms of transfers and his average wage bill and obviously they've been down in the lower leagues not just championship, but below that, his average yeah. wage spend has been twenty-one point four million a year. 
in his 13 years. So when you're looking at so the comparison at one end, Manchester City's wages and net spend per year, £385 million per year, adjusted to 2022 figures during Mansell's reign. At Brentford, that's £15.6 million. And, and obviously the different clubs. So, so that was, that was, the, that was the, the rationale for doing it, to find out what people thought about owners. And then the results, obviously, you know, were presented today. A huge majority of fans across most clubs are in favour of a regulator who, who would like to see uh, nation states and all uh, you, you know, people backed by governments and sovereign wealth funds. 85% of all fans, um, two clubs, two clubs, if two clubs hadn't voted so much against that, and those two clubs were Man City and Newcastle for fairly obvious mm. reasons, then it would have been obviously well above 90%. So that was one finding. And then there was all the deep dive detail into what the individual fans thought of, of their owners. And, and um, I think, you know, I, I, I thought it was interesting because we carried all the financial stuff and obviously people filling in the forms could tell us why they thought, you know, why they thought different people, you know, were good, why, why their owners were good and why they liked other clubs. And, uh, and so there was just mountains, you know, 11,000 sets of responses. Some of them, thousands of, you know, I think some of the individual forms ended up running into more than a thousand words each. When yeah. you were to, when you know somebody, some people responding about what they wanted a regulator to do, given an open, you know, an open box to fill in, we're using five, six hundred words to say this, 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 and this. In the same way that people, when talking about why they thought their owners were good or bad, we're using hundreds of words. So, you know, you had eleven thousand, nearly eleven thousand responses to go through, and some of them were a thousand words each, and quite a lot of them were two or three sentences like 20 words each so that was more common a couple of paragraphs but that's still 11,000 data you know responses to go through to, uh, to then sort of analyze and to produce quotes that are sort of consensus quotes on on what um, different fan groups felt about their owners and also about the regulator and I love the uh, detractors um, consensus quote on uh, Manchester City I thought that was uh very well read <laughs> yeah that was okay so the detractor quote there was so again the fan, the fan uh, i'll just run through man city shake man saw um been in charge since 2008 average league position in the five years before he took over it's 12th average league position in completed seasons under his ownership 2.77 so that's a massive plus average net spend on players adjusted to 2022 prices 115.6 million average wage bill 269.5 million um, regulatory issues, obviously the sanctioned by FFP uh, twice, ongoing PL investigation achievements, five Premier League titles, two FA Cups, six League Cups, pretty impressive. More than 90%, not surprisingly, um, approval rating, fan comments summarising the consensus view, i.e. the approval, long-term strategy, clear goals, excellent in everything from Julius to women to brilliant for the team, regeneration of East Manchester, all of course all true, all obvious. And the detractor view, so in each case, the detractor view would be, you know, one of the rare people who wasn't necessarily a fan of the owner, what, what was their summary? And that was, most realised we haven't obeyed FFP, that's why everyone hates us, like to have done it without the cheating, so we had respect, but trophies, exclamation mark. Which again is, is that is, that is the, you only need to go on social media to see that is the, the view. And 
if that's the view of Man City fans, then fair enough. They've enjoyed a period of, of quality football and silverware since Mansour came in that is, you, you know, unheard of in English football in, mm. in recent decades. Pep Guardiola is a brilliant manager, no doubt about it. He's, he's done it at produced record-winning teams at Barcelona and Bayern Munich and, and obviously at Manchester City in the play. Amazing football and they've had, you know, amazingly talented players there. I mean, you know, I know Company was there long before Pep, but inspirational figure, David Silva, brilliant player, obviously Kevin De Bruyne, brilliant player. Foden is bright, one of the brightest talents in English football has seen for, arguably for generations. It, it, it's great. Um, but yeah, the, the, fan, the fan view is... You know, they kind of revel in the fact of calling themselves the oil team and, you know, you hate us, we don't care. And, and that is the, the sort of, that is the view. Mm. That's, so be it. Indeed, indeed. Um, right, well, um, we've, we've covered a heck of a lot there in the best part of an hour, Nick. Um, yeah, so you can cut it in half now and just cut out all the waffles. <laughs> no, no. It was all gold, I can assure you. I mean, it was, uh, as I say, at the back of a very uh, noteworthy and newsworthy week. Um, you know, as we just talked about during this podcast, a lot of developments on all of these stories um, over the last seven or so days. And obviously with a couple of these stories, the Chelsea sale in particular, um, there will be obviously a lot more uh, to come out over the coming uh, days, weeks, possibly months as well. But uh, I do want to really thank you for your time. I know you've been very busy uh, with, with uh, all sorts of stories, including obviously the one that was published today. Um, and obviously there's, there's so much going on at the moment. Uh, but, uh, you know, your, your time in joining us today is something that not only I, but our listeners also appreciate. Um, so just as we conclude and close this podcast, Nick, um, where can people find you on social media? Just on Twitter at Sporting Intel, and um, there, if you go to the sportingintelligence.com website, we do have a Facebook page. We haven't, it's not a lot of stuff on the Facebook page, um, but there is a Facebook page, and obviously sportingintelligence.com, the website, which um, has, as I said, hasn't had a lot of content on it in recent years for personal reasons. Um, and, um, but there's lots and lots of stuff there that still, is relevant to sort of issues around football finals. Like you say, you can find Tom Markham's model there. You can go in and look at all sorts of previous analysis of transfer spending, of wages, of FFP issues, sort of investigative stuff there on football and other issues. Um, so there's a lot of stuff still on sportingintelligence.com that might be of interest to people. Tremendous. And uh, certainly, listeners, I do urge you to uh, follow Nick, if you aren't doing so already, and um, you know, also strongly encourage you to uh, read the article on um, the fan survey, and, which you can uh, find all the links on my Twitter handle. So it's absolutely. just at Sporting Intel, all one word. Fantastic, um, listeners. I'll be back um, in the coming weeks. I've produced um, an unprecedented amount of money talks during this past month. Um, I think five in total. <laughs> That's uh, very unusual for me I'm, I'm normally running it around a month what one a month so um dangerously steering away from being the resident part-timer here on Anfield Index but uh 
I'll, I'll be getting back into old ways and uh, likely we'll only have one Money Talks out during the month of April before we return with the very popular transfer committee, um, I suspect, in May. So do uh, keep an eye out for that. But uh, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.